You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning. As introduced, I'm Tom. I'm the interim pastor, and uh, I guess, which means interim means for the time being. I guess we're all interim, aren't we? We're all here for the time being. But please be praying for the search committee. It is getting close uh, to really landing on the final candidates and and eventually candidate, and uh, you'll be hearing more about that in uh, the coming days. And what a good Sunday to have to go without the air conditioning, you know, just a, a little bit demonstration of common grace, and I'm grateful for that. We're in this series together, uh, three Sundays in, on a, a, a portion of the book of Psalms that's called the Psalms, and that's just Hebrew for songs, the Songs of Ascents, and it's plural, Ascents. And it was believed that these 15 Psalms were what the Hebrew pilgrims sang or chanted on their way from wherever they lived to Jerusalem three times a year for the great feasts, the great celebrations. And they provide us a very practical framework of discipleship and what we need to make it through this journey called life. And the Psalms is one of the books, the 66 books, this library comprising the Bible, which is, of its many themes, one of them clearly is an epic love story between he and his people. But sort of right off the bat, that notion, it's a little bit flawed. Because, and particularly in our culture, falling in love just isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Uh, psychologists tell us that falling in love is simply the breaking down of ego boundaries that normally separate two people the sense that they are, in fact, separated. And we know that people give up on love when they no longer feel in love. And it's a tragedy that our culture places so much weight on the notion of falling in love because what happens when the thrill, when the feeling of falling is gone and you've fallen out of love? Is it like a tightrope walk where just one slip and you fall out of love? A lot of people's experience would suggest yes. Or is love in fact something more? Is it really much more of a commitment or even a sacrifice. I know just far too many people who've been broken by falling in and out of love, found that if you subtract commitment from falling in love, then all you're left with is sex. That's why in our culture reduces love to sex, saying in fact that people make love. And given that love seems so elusive, I guess it really does come down to friends with benefits. Uh, where, where, where is this going, Tom? Uh, nonetheless, the, the right sense, in the right sense, love, in fact, is the greatest of these faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these 
is love. But how many of us associate the word love with the church? Well, the psalmist does this morning. He says, may they be secure who love you. Now, the, love, the word love here has the tone of, really, of star-crossed lovers, but it also, the same word is used to, for other kinds of love throughout the scripture. But it's not the, defin, the dictionary definition of love that makes me think the author of the psalm is head over heels in love with God's house. It's that this psalm reads like a love note. Look, he's excited, he's thrilled, he's, he's kind of gushing and babbling, he's, he's reliving the last time he was there. Oh, his feet had been standing right there at your gates, O Jerusalem, in verse 2. He remembers, wow, I, 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 was, at, I was at her door trying to summon up the courage to, to ring the doorbell. I was just sick with love. And then he's describing her. Look at her. Wonderfully built. It was all so fantastic. Look at her. Isn't she stunning? And Jerusalem here is very much a she that he is smitten with. And this is important today because our attitude in our culture is to love principally in selfish or self-serving Ways. If we love someone, we tend to love them as long as we're getting what we want or feel that we need from that other person, as long as they love us. But what if there were a love, or what if there is a love, which we can experience that is meant to be more for the benefit of both, or even at the cost of ourselves. Eric Fromm said about 60 years ago, there's not much love to be found in human relations of our day. There is rather a superficial friendliness mixed with a good deal of subtle distrust. I think that kind of describes our world even today. Superficial friendliness. A heart emoji. And because of this superficiality, I know I'm, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush as we start. It's this superficiality that drives our desire for community. Loneliness, there was a headline this week, if you, if you text me, I'll send you a link to the article, it was fascinating, that loneliness is now at a pandemic level and that scientists are working on a pill for loneliness, saying it's a condition more threatening than smoking or obesity. Imagine that, cure for relationships, for loneliness in a pill. I don't think that's the problem. I think the fact that we're so lonely is the problem. And while the tech revolution allows us to instantly connect with people all over the world, we long for a much more high-touch reality. I sat with a gentleman on the airplane the other day who said, he's, he, what do you do for a living? He says, I'm working in the next trillion-dollar business. Well, what's that? Sorry for the kids in the room, but this gentleman said, 
sex robots. Wow, trillion dollar business. The government of Japan is believing that alone threatens their culture, that such low procreation rates. Well, anyway, we see revolutions in the news and what's going on in, in Hong Kong right now and around the world, fueled in so many ways by instant social media, but people still gather in the city square, in the airport terminal, in places, because just as a symbol of the, the need to connect in ways beyond just technical. And when it comes to church, surprisingly, we can miss out on community as well. Keith Miller said, churches today are filled with people who outwardly look contented and at peace, but are inwardly crying out for someone to love them. Confused, frustrated, guilty, and often unable to communicate even within their own families. But the other people in the church look so happy and so contented that one seldom has courage to admit their own deep needs. It takes courage to admit this deep need that we all have for community. Now, last week, the psalmist looked up to the hills uh, for help from God, but now he's remembering and, and he admonished himself and to not look to the false answers found in those hills. Now he's reminding himself on the journey in this third step, he's reminding himself of his community of love, of why he's on this journey to worship the Lord, to go to Jerusalem and to worship with God's people. The psalmist is clearly not like one of those people who loves God, but is not quite so sure about the church. Maybe that's you. If not, I know you're on a first-name basis with people who are. But for him, God and his people are intimately connected. From the old Latin, extra ecclesium nulla salus, no salvation outside of the church. Grossly misunderstood to mean that the church somehow saves you, what it really means is that if you're saved, then you're part of the church. Or as John Stott put, put it, the person of God who is not part of the people of God is a grotesque anomaly. If decapitation, from the Latin caput, to cut off the head, then it stands to reason that decorpulation, from the Latin corpus, would be cut off from the body. In other words, there are some churches that tend not to listen to Jesus and his word and are therefore in danger of decapitation from Christ, as there are persons in churches who tend to, or persons who are Christians who tend to live disconnected from the church and who are in danger of decorporation or being cut off from Christ's body. How then can we begin to love church or to love church 
more, not churchy things, but the people of God. The first step and the two points that this psalm makes to us instructs us to dump our individualism. The psalmist reaches into his backpack and he drops his individualism by the side of the road. Look at verses one and two. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Individualism is one of the bedrocks of our Western society, but individuals have always needed community. Look at how the, psalm, the pilgrim approaches the idea of community. I, as an individual, was glad, excited or thrilled, when they, friends, said to me, an individual, let us, now they're an us, now they're a community, go to the house of the Lord so that our feet arrived within your gates. That means that when I say, let's go to church, you're glad to go because you want to. You don't think, you know, I've really got better things to do. And, and hang on, don't shut the door yet. This isn't some kind of legalistic, you know, thing at all. Just, just, just hang on to the ski rope a little bit longer. <clears throat> we don't think I've got better things to do. We're glad, we're excited, thrilled. No, what we really are is disciplined and motivated. Because worship is never forced. It's because we need it like we need our next breath. And the pilgrim knows that the point is the con that connection is necessary, meaningful, grounding, and essential. But I don't have to go into a church house to connect with God. No, you don't. But you do need regular connection with his, him and his people in context together, and we'll figure out why as we go on. It is something that is intended for, to make our life better. And this community is for all of God's people, all of the tribes. Look at verses 3 and 4. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The church really is the big tent in society. There were tribes, different tribes, 12 of them. Sometimes these tribes were even at war with each other. That's how different they were. And with all of those different styles and different tastes and different traditions and different desires and different wants... Nonetheless, they united for worship. Dropping our individualism means resisting the natural tribalism that makes you only want to be with people like you. Church is so much bigger than our personal preferences. It is God's house, even a rented high school auditorium. It is God's house, not my faction's clubhouse. It's God's word, not my theological axe to grind. It's the Lord's table, not my private dinner party, because the reality is 
none of us is easy to love. Just look to your left and right. In the mirror, yes, and confirm what I just, just said. But in loving each other, and aren't you grateful it says love one another, it doesn't say like one another because there are people who it's impossible to like. But it's about loving. It is in loving one another that we escape the hell of individualism. I say that because hell, Dostoevsky said, is the suffering of being unable to love. In other words, the church is rehab for narcissists just like you and me who learn to sober up, get clean, and kick the habit. It is, in fact, a new society for the new creation. So the first part of this psalm is a crystal clear rejection of any individualistic notion of what it means to have a relationship with God. Yes, my God, my Bible, me, my latte, with alone with the Lord, that, that's part of it. But it's only part. And no, it's not just the physical act, just the physical act of going you know, inside a church or a gathering. I don't know who said it first, you know, going to church does not make you any more godly than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And of course, the church is laced with all sorts of problems and dysfunctions because it's made of people just like you and me. There are sheep without a house as well as there are wolves within the house Hypocrites, hooligans, harlots, hobos, and heroes. But to be part of the universal people of God, and if you weren't here, go back and pick up off the website uh, the messages from uh, the Apostles' Creed, and the two messages, one by Nate on the communion of the saints, and one that I preached on uh, the the universe, I believe in the holy universal a church. But to be part of the universal people of God, you are by, ne- by definition a part of the local people of God. Otherwise, you end up trying to love everyone in general and in the end not loving anyone in particular. Yeah, but that's hard. No joke, it's hard. So what do I do? Step one. Or step two, you you dumped your individualism, now drop your cynicism. Second, not only does the pilgrim dump his individualism that keeps one away from the house of God, he now offloads his cynicism about God's house once he arrives. Verse five, three, there thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. What's that all about? It's easy to be cynical about the local church, the tradition of any particular Christian group, the way you were raised, the denomination, doctrine, all uh, you know, traditions and their idiosyncrasies. That's the stuff that's underneath 
in verses 5 and 7, the thrones, the walls, the towers, because they can be impersonal, institutional, sterile, confusing, divisive. Strangely enough, the author of this psalm seems just as excited about the well-built walls and the thrones of judgment as he is about the friends with whom he is glad to go to church. It's easy to be cynical about traditions and whatever, but the pilgrim seems thrilled with the tangible elements, walls, towers, thrones. Cynicism can also be about authority figures, but this psalmist admires the judgment thrones from where justice is administered. He's not sneering and saying, oh, well, well, David would praise the throne of David, wouldn't he? But a genuine gladness in the goodness and a trust in the goodness of the ruler. What the judgments and thrones is really all about is the accountability to live Godward and not wayward as in the two previous psalms have taught us. The one here, or is there anyone here that doesn't need accountability? Don't need any help, don't need any encouragement, any discipline, any admonishment, any guidance, really can make it on your own? He's not looking up to the hills for counsel but to the counsel of God's word through God's people. And reading this childlike love for God's house is a stark contrast, isn't it? To those church-damaged believers who are friends, our relatives, maybe even ourselves, who've seen behind the curtain and find it hard to take anymore. Now look, there are things that can happen in churches that can turn any saint into a cynic. But experience has taught that cynicism about God's house is really almost always masking a very real cynicism about God himself. As many say, you know, one hand, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, and the other is, you know, I love Jesus, but I can't take the church. It's no different than saying, yeah, I love you, pal, but I hate your wife. It just complicates the relationship. I mean, deal with this. If you love Jesus, you're not going to be cynical about his bride. Disappointed, yes. Truth-telling, absolutely. Wanting her to change, certainly. But not cynical. I work with people in broken relationships all of the time, and I have seen couples and corporations and partnerships bounce back from the most horrific betrayal
and marriages come back together after unfaithfulness and even abuse and bizarre stuff, but never, I've never, never seen it bounce back from contempt. That demeaning cynicism that you refuse to see good at all. Cynicism, Shakespeare illustrated in his play King Lear, who gives his daughters their inheritance only to discover that once they got what they wanted, they were feel free to feel him, free to show him exactly how they felt. It's really an interpretation of the prodigal, the story of the prodigal son. And they begin treating him with gross ingratitude, another, another form of contempt. And the old man ends up homeless, out in the wilds, destitute, in the middle of a raging storm. And his epic line is bitterly shouted in the middle of the play, Blow, blow thou winter wind, thou art not so unkind as man's ingratitude. And the psalmist has none of that ingratitude. Instead, the psalmist, the pilgrim, even admires the thrones of judgment and justice and authority of God's house. He drops his cynicism about Authority. And he calls us in the same breath to drop our cynicism and to pray for peace, which means more than the English words communicate. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, verses 6 and 7. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. Without any thrones of judgment or justice, fairness or order, there can be no peace in society or certainly in God's house. It is fairly straightforward to dump your individualism and to embrace the community of God's people because you know you're not meant to be alone, but it takes a little bit more work to reject cynicism about the authority of God in our lives because none of us like to be told what to do. But what if it, what if it, what man, I'm having a time today. But what if God's authority is exactly what does give us peace? The word peace doesn't mean merely the absence of conflict, the absence of war, the cease firing. It means, it doesn't mean the absence of ick, it means the presence of wholeness, of shalom. And it's in the name where he's headed, Jerusalem. The peace and wholeness of God. 
Oliver Wendell Holmes said, love is sparingly soluble in the words of men. Meaning, because you know it too, love is impossible to define. But God's love, his love for his people, his loving order, his justice, our love for his people, his loving order, his justice, all calls, causes the psalmist to pray for the wholeness expressed in the word shalom and the security in the word shalva. Wholeness and security. And finally, he drops his cynicism not just for the now, but for the what is yet to come. The now and the future. Look at verses 8 and 9. For my brothers and companions' sakes, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. His commitment is just one more chapter in the ongoing story of his destination, Jerusalem. The first time we hear about Jerusalem, at least in the timeline, comes late in the book. It's explained in the book of Hebrews that it was the hometown of the priest king Melchizedek. Then the story goes underground for a number of years. And then the Israelites take over the land and Jerusalem is the citadel of the Jebusites. In fact, it was called Jebus back then in the words of Homer Simpson. That's what it was called, Jebus, or Yebus, actually. It was such an impenetrable fortress that the tribe of Benjamin tried to, tried to take it over, couldn't, tried to starve them out, couldn't, laid siege to it, couldn't take it, and finally just sort of circumvents it, and eventually David lays siege to the city, captures it, and renamed it the city of David. He brought the Ark of the Covenant there, and his son, Solomon, built the great temple there. But, as is so often the sordid tale goes, God's people didn't stay faithful. And despite all of the warnings from many of the prophets, they sold out to idolatry and eventually were invaded, defeated, and marched off in captivity, only to return many years later, as was promised by God through the voice of those same prophets that warned them to knock it off. And oh, they wanted to rebuild the temple when they got back home, but they were still in bondage. It made them both weep for joy and grief when they returned and remembered the glories of the now-destroyed temple but like I said, they were still in captivity under a foreign power, simply allowed to go home, but not free. You know, isn't it interesting that you can come to Christ, be saved, and yet not free? That we can allow things control our lives? Uh, that being saved and being free are not synonymous. 
They had been saved from their bondage, but they weren't free. Because you see, they were under King Herod, the puppet king of the Roman Empire, who rebuilt the temple to some sense of magnificence. But this was the temple that Jesus went to worship at. And it was from the Temple Mount, he looked out over the city of Jerusalem when he said in Luke chapter 19, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus is referring right back to this psalm. And he loved them, and he wanted them, but they reject him and crucified him. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for their friends. Jerusalem continued, even after his death, burial, and resurrection. They continued to dream of a material kingdom, of military power, of attempting to throw off the heavy yoke of Roman rule, But once again, it was sacked and burned and the temple destroyed and the people marched off in bondage and defeat. And though thousands of years had gone by and there is a state of Israel and the Jewish people there, the temple remains unrestored. But one day, the heavenly Jerusalem, will be revealed. And the spiritual Jerusalem of which we who trust Jesus Christ are all part of will arrive. And things will be made right. And there will be the final renewing of all things. And you and I are part of that story. That's his story. And there's just no room for cynicism In such a future. Only for the seeking of the good of God's people, his church, his world. That's our story. Look at Revelation chapter 1. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the story, the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear and crystal. So look, every time you get fed up with the church, and she'll try to do that, won't she? Don't mean to be sexist, and you know it's not about females. It's that's how the brain. She will test you and try you. It's but every time you get fed up, every time you get cynical about God's people, or say to yourself, "Why do I need this? Why can't I just go to heaven by myself?" When that comes, look to this. Psalm. He's reminding himself why he's on this journey in the first place. Look at how the pilgrim feels about God's people, how he drops his individualism, dumps his cynicism, and how it leads to the story of future peace. Then seek the church's good, her wholeness, her shalom, her prosperity, her shavah. Every time you feel unloved 
or unlovable. Remember, you are the bride. The one whom God himself came down, lived, died, and rose again so that you might have peace and wholeness now and forevermore. Every anxious anticipation, every longing romance, every hopeful glance, every happy, long-lasting relationship is but a mere glimmer, a shadow, an echo of this epic love story, crazy head over heels in love God is with you. Even more importantly, if you want to grow in the love of God, love his people. For this is the center of his heart. Tom, look, if, if you're taking a half an hour just to tell me that this is really just about the importance of, of going to church, yes, especially when you don't feel like it. Because when you don't feel like it, you feel you're not getting anything out of it. That's right when we most need the discipline, the reassurance, and we need your presence in our lives. There are things about God that you and only you show me. And I need that. Because left to our own limited, stilted, incomplete, flawed selves, we are dangerous. Now, his love is not cheap or tawdry or commercialized or trife, but it's rugged. It's even bloody. He didn't feel like it. He begged for any other way for this cup to pass by. But then, nonetheless, not my will be done, but yours. And in that moment, all of your disappointment in life became his. All of your heartache became his. All of the deep bruising that happens when you're vulnerable and open in the church became his. And every reason to be angry bitter and cynical became his. And in his body, in the temple, his body, sacrifice was made and they were all dealt with in order to win your peace forever. There it is, lesson three. Go to church, especially when you don't feel like it. Keep on heading to Jerusalem. It's worth the trip.
This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.